This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is concert promoter Danny Zalisco, who's got a brand new book, All Excess. Danny, good to have you. Great to be here, Bob. How are you? I'm good. Let's start with the most important thing first. How did you become a member of the White Castle Hall of Fame? Um, Last year, your good friend Toby Mamus made me aware of the fact that Alice was going to get an Alice Cooper's Corner at the new White Castle in Scottsdale. Uh, There has never been, other than the Vegas White Castle on the Strip, Uh, There's never been another White Castle uh, franchise in Arizona or anywhere west of the Mississippi. Um, There are no franchises. They're all family owned. I tried to buy one 40 years ago and they said, we're family owned. Forget it. And um, I ended up meeting up with these people and and working with them with Alice for this uh, grand opening. And it was no big deal. It was just a couple of phone calls and so forth. But I ended up showing up there with them. I met the family, the White Castle family. That's their real last name, White Castle family. And um, they ended up uh, becoming friendly with me. And then I said, well, hell, John Prine should go into the Hall of Fame. I mean, he's a major White Castle lover. And and then Tommy Shaw came to town in January. And we had a show. And after the show, I had a Crave case backstage, which the bands just go crazy for when you have White Castles after the show for them. And uh, Tommy Shaw went crazy. So I talked to this guy at White Castle and I said, we'd like to do another Hall of Fame thing. I got John Prine and I got Tommy Shaw and, and, and I'll do it, too, if you want. And he was he loved me. And I met him with the Alice thing. And one thing led to another. And we had this little induction ceremony in the Nashville White Castle because that's where both Tommy and Fiona Prine live. Um, and uh, it was a great, great experience. So to to uh, enhance that, 
they sent me out these things called Crave Clutch boxes that you can go to White Castle and it's like a little suitcase and they'll put 20 hamburgers in there for you and you walk away like it's a little briefcase. They sent me a thousand of those to send out my book in to the people who are buying it online. And then they gave me coupons to to get free uh, uh, frozen burgers. And and if you're in a town that's got real White Castle, you can go there and they, they had a coupon for three burgers. So I called it uh, dinner and a show. I sent a couple little wine tasting glasses in the box along with the book. And everybody's really enjoyed the presentation. <laughs> Yeah, the presentation is great. I was surprised. You don't normally get someone putting that much thought into it. But just to go back, the national headquarters of White Castle are where? It's in Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio. So did you grow up eating White Castle? I did. Um, You know, back in the 50s, uh, you know, six kids, eight people in the house, small house. Um, Dad's an electrician. We don't go out for dinner very often. But when you can get a dozen burgers for a buck, he can be a stud and take his family out to dinner. And that's the whole idea behind that restaurant. I, I've always loved them for that. They've uh, the family thing about it and, and, and just the fact that they're always open and ready to feed you. I just love them. Okay. You know, I've heard from varying people about pulling all nighters and going to White Castle and they would <laughs> tell you how many burgers they ate that time. What's the greatest number of White Castle burgers you've eaten at one time? Uh, I would have to say the one and only time I did 10 was in a White Castle eating contest that Adam West, Batman, was the judge of. And I tied with a local uh, TV celebrity in Phoenix, a news guy. And, and immediately following the show, I went on to, he had a tour bus for a dressing room. It was out, out in this place called Fountain Hills. And they brought a semi of White Castles out there. And uh, afterwards, I said, Adam, can I use your bus? He goes, just remember, no number two. <laughs> and I said, how about a number three? <laughs> and and out they went. Um, but, you know, nowadays I'm a two or three White Castle guy. Those things just, they're so delicious, but they rip me up. Okay, let's switch gears again. You are a concert promoter of longstanding. When are shows coming back? You know, I... As soon as they can figure out how to do an, a rapid test, um, I think we could have shows. I don't know why it's not been done already. Um, I think it's going to be a while before there's an antidote or a vaccine. Um, I think, you know, instead of like some places where you go, they'll, they'll push a, a temperature gun at you and okay, you got a good temperature and they allow you in. Like that's all that matters. And we all know that that's not enough. You got to know whether or not you're carrying that stuff or if people next to you are carrying it. And and most people don't have it. I mean, I personally would go to a concert or a baseball game if on the way in, uh, if somebody points something to me or says, here's a swab and my swab turns a different color, like a pregnancy test. And it says whether or not you're carrying. If you're not carrying, go in. If you are carrying, step over here. We'll tell you what you need to do. Here's your money back. Um, until that can happen, I, I mean, right now, what are we looking at? Memorial Day at this point? And that's just a guess, just like it was back in March when we started guessing for June. Nobody had any idea back then. And to sit here right now, I, I don't know that anybody's got any idea 
even better at this point. But the bottom line is for us, our economy is about selling tickets and having people working in halls and radio stations and secretaries and ushers and security and stagehands and all the rest. Our economy that, that, that runs the concert business is sitting here waiting to move. And, um, my guess is as good as yours as far as when that'll happen. But it, it seems to me that as soon as we can get some sort of a, a gauge on whether or not people are carrying this terrible disease or not, and most people aren't, it's the ones that do in these small spaces that seem to spread it everywhere like wildfire. And now those are the people we got to sort out. Okay. My now, if I speak with agents and I do, they're constantly rebooking gigs, putting holds on as a promoter. Is that something you've been doing in the last seven months? Yes. Um, we've rebooked shows and I, I, I have my best year lined up this year. Um, and you know, I had all the travel, all the hotels, all the radio, everything's booked. And we had to systematically tear it down one by one, starting with the shows in March and April and move those to, cause nobody knew what was going on. We moved them to June, July. The next thing you know, we're moving them to September, October. And, and then they're moving to next year and now they're next summer and now they're next fall. It seems ridiculous to me. Um, that, that th- this is all we're doing and nobody's saying, I mean, when they're talking about the economy, you're talking about Wall Street. They're not talking about regular people. Regular people don't participate in Wall Street. They go to concerts. They go to restaurants, you know, and, and, um, we, we've got to be able to determine whether or not people are sick or not so that we can have some sort of life. That what we're doing right now is, is a half life, you know, it's, it's okay. Good. So how many full-time people, let's talk prior to the virus. How many full-time people did you have at Denny's Alisco presents? Um, just six. And now we have five, uh, one guy left and he went on to do something else, but everybody else, uh, is still there. Uh, they accepted reduced pay and, and, uh, all of a sudden finishing this book became, uh, a priority for me. And I didn't want to let everybody go. I mean, I was, I was hoping I wouldn't lose them. Like so many people have lost great employees, uh, because of this, they got to eat. So fortunately, I think they haven't told me different that I'm giving them enough to live on. I, and I hope it is enough. Um, cause I'd like to keep things going as it is. I'm not going to learn how to do books. Um, and, and art and, and all different kinds of stuff that I still have to do while I'm maintaining these shows that have been postponed one time after another. We still got to do, you know, dealings with the ticketing people at halls and, and, you know, advertising and, and website stuff. And, you know, it's like we're still open to a degree, but we're just not working putting on shows the way that we used to. We're, we're waiting to be able to do that. Now, right now you're in Maui. How long have you been in Maui? I got here last Friday. Okay. You weren't um, afraid to get on a plane? No, no. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I, we weren't able to come to Maui at all this year. We, uh, we own a place over here in Hana with a few friends and, um, 
we haven't been able to come here since February because they wanted a two-week quarantine. Now what they do is you have to have a test within 72 hours and you can um, come over here as long as it's negative and, and you don't have to go through the quarantine process. Um, no, I'm not afraid to get on a plane. They, I've been on a number of planes. People have been spaced around. Um, everybody's got their mask on. Uh, and, and, and I think for by and large, people aren't traveling if they're not feeling well. I, they ask you straight up. Of course, you could lie, but what good would that do? Kind of like lying about a golf score. It doesn't help. Um, so yeah, um, I had no problem. I had no problem getting on a plane. Um, we're pretty much sequestered here. Uh, while we're here, there's, there's nobody here. There's no tourism happening either. And, uh, okay. But Maui is known for having a lot of residents from the music business, both business people and creative people. Shep Gordon seems to be the straw that stirs the drink. So is there anything going on with those people? And if not, tell us the way it used to be. Well, um, you know, Shep just had a baby and, and, uh, he's the, he's the youngest 75 year old daddy I've ever met. Um, as a matter of fact, Friday, we're going over to the other side and staying with him for two days. Uh, his, his wife said, uh, has decided I'm, I'm clean and Leslie, my wife, we're clean and we can stay with them for a couple of days. Um, you know, uh, Things, you know, I mean, things have changed here, obviously, because we can't go back and forth the way that we used to. Um, Shep isn't having his Christmas show this year for the first time in I don't know how many years. Uh, it's kind of a reboot, the whole thing, you know. Okay. Do you still get as excited about a show as you did at the beginning? For the most part, yes, because a lot of the people that I'm working with after all these years are people that I've worked with for so long. This is our chance to get together and be together. We Like Jackson Brown or Alan Parsons, for example, uh, or Gordon Lightfoot or Willie Nelson, they're always touring. And, and these are some of the guys that I do a lot of shows with. They're always on the road. They're not the kind of people that you just call up and go out to dinner with because they're all of us are always working. We're always somewhere. We're always doing something. So our way of getting together is doing concerts. So every time I get a chance to see one of these guys and be with them for more than one night, two nights, three nights, I mean, I've been going all over the country with Parsons and Frankie Valley. Um, you know, I had 18 shows on sale at Frankie Valley when all this took place. And, and we're both chomping at the bit to go back and do these shows. He's another one of the youngest 85 year old people I've ever met. Um, you know, we're, we're all just, we're all just chomping at the bit to go to work. And, uh, I love getting around with these guys. It's, it's really a great way to go through life. Okay. So you talk to a lot of promoters of our vintage or a little older who came of age, uh, with the Beatles and a lot of them at this point have a younger person in the office who books talent because they don't believe they're in touch other than with the legendary acts that you just mentioned. Is that the case with you in your office and some of the shows you do? Well, no, I mean, I'm the only one that really does the booking and, and, um, prior to this, I did most of my own booking. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I get terribly excited about shows. I, I love the whole process. Um, I love that people 
come to these shows and this is their their escape and it's their release and and being with friends or even just musicians great ones it it's so great to to bring all that together and have these people under one roof and and explode together you know like coming together as one it's uh i think it's one of the greatest greatest things you can do Okay, so at this point, you're presenting under Danny Zalisco Presents. Is it all your money, or do you have any partners? Because you've had partners in the past. I have had partners in the past. No, this is this is all my money. Um, in 2011, I, I went back on my own uh, after five years with Live Nation and five years with uh, Clear Channel, uh, which also included SFX, who I originally sold to. and And nowadays... There, I don't really have the need for the younger guy, guy in the office, although I would love one, because there's been a couple of other people who used to work for me who have put up some really cool clubs in Phoenix. Uh, Charlie Levy did uh, uh, the Crescent Ballroom and the Van Buren, both of which I've booked shows in. And um, he does such an amazing job. It would be stupid for me to compete with a guy like him who knows everything I know and everything he knows, and he has the venues. So there, there's no point in me doing that anymore. When, when something comes up and somebody wants me to work with them, of course I'll do it. And I want to do it. I love discovering new bands. But at this point, at 66 years old, I'm happy to be doing the business that I'm doing with the, you know, with the bands that I'm doing. It's like everybody's kind of left me alone in this little genre of promoting. Um, and, and I'm having a really good time doing it. I'm generally into small halls, 500 up to say 4,000. And, and that's, that's where I'm working these days. I can't afford to be in the game with people who are getting million dollar guarantees every night and they'll write them a check for $30 million for a tour as a deposit. You know, that, that's what those guys do. God bless them. Good for them. I used to do that. But uh, I'm afraid, you know, that part of my life is pretty much over. Okay. Prior to the roll-up, the acts and agents had special relationships with the promoters, such that they might, on a losing show, they might, the act might give money back. Now that you're independent in this post-roll-up world, does that apply? Because no one gives money back to Live Nation. Okay. It's a public company. They don't, and really not to AEG either. But does that still happen today if you have a losing show? It has happened, you know, you know, most people aren't real willing to give up money, especially, I don't know, especially after all this, but prior to this, um, it was very, well, it was very rare that I ever had to ask not to brag, but generally speaking, I mean, if, if I lose money on five shows in a year, that's a lot. I don't make stupid mistakes like I used to because I don't have all of the arena shows to cover my ass for taking unnecessary risks to do favors for people, for example. So nowadays, I mean, I, I looked at it the, uh, recently, I don't, you know, a couple months ago. And in the last couple of years, I'd only had a handful of losers and they were small ones. I haven't been beaten up badly in a long time where I would really genuinely need to go ask somebody for a reduction or an adjustment. In your uh, 40-year career, um, what was your biggest loser? 
I would have to, yeah, well, there's, there's no question. Uh, New Year's, pre-New Year's weekend uh, at the Millennium, 1999. I did uh, December 28, 29 with the Eagles and December 31 and January 1, which is a Friday, Saturday with Bette Midler. Both of them were, excuse me, both of them were at Mandalay Bay. And uh, this is when Mandalay wasn't owned by MGM. So they were on their own. MGM was on their own. And it was great to have both buildings there because one would often be booked and you'd have to go to the other one. Now, what were, what were the capacities for those who don't know? Well, MGM is uh, 14,000, 15,000. That's the biggest one. And uh, Mandalay, if you went all the way around, would be about 11,000. But front and sides, about 9,000. So you could charge more for tickets at Mandalay because you had less to sell. Um, but it was still, you know, a, a high, highly regarded building. So Barbara Streisand was booked into MGM on New Year's Eve. And um, I started with Tina Turner. Tina Turner was going to be my show. I was booking it with Carol Kinzel at CAA. And suddenly Howard Rose got into the picture. And it went from me doing Tina Turner on one night, New Year's Eve, in Vegas. That was the only thing I was going to do. And it would have been perfect. Tina was as hot as could be. And Vegas, just absolutely perfect mix of rock and show business. And uh, Howard got involved. And the next thing you know, he wrapped Elton and Tina together and sold it to Caesars Palace for an unheard of amount of money. And I stepped aside and said, sorry, I got to get out of this. It, it was just too much. Um, so then the Bette Midler came along and, and the Eagles had already passed on an offer we made. And then they came back in the picture uh, and both of them came back for more money. And I was already guaranteeing them a huge amount of money, uh, but they added more. And, and we were so bullish on the millennium at that time that we went along with it. And uh, that's about what I ended up losing. Close wait, to wait, two mil. Close to two mil. Okay. Where was the mistake? The mistake was not knowing that in Las Vegas, that they were going to do a four night minimum to stay there on New Year's. And they were going to triple or quadruple the room rate charges. Back in the late nineties, you know, you could, you could go to MGM or Mandalay and get a room for 150 bucks, maybe less if you had a special. Um, these rooms were now 500 a piece. Uh, and you had a four in some places, five night minimum. Um, my feeling at the time was that that whole week between Christmas and New Year's, was me one of the greatest weeks in in our life history, much less Vegas history. I mean, what's bigger than a New Year's Eve in Las Vegas, much less a millennium? Well, that's the Kool Aid I drank anyway. I I, I felt bulletproof, and uh, we didn't know we didn't know that that they were going to do that with the hotel rooms. We didn't know the, about Y two K. We didn't know about terrorist threats. I didn't know Barbara Streisand was booked on New Year's Eve already at the MGM. Um, and we went and booked two nights with Bet because it was a Friday and Saturday. 
to me, this is like, who doesn't want to be in Vegas for Bette Midler on New Year's at the Millennium? I mean, it just seemed like such a frivolity-ridden thing. And, and then there's Barbara Streisand. And then on Streisand, they added a second night because they were filming these shows. And they ended up papering the house because they couldn't sell a second night, but they only had the second night so they could film the crowd shots and all that stuff. So they papered the shit out of it. And, um, you know, what would you like to do? You want to go see Barbara Streisand for free on January 1st? You want to pay 500 for Bette Midler? The tickets were also very pricey. There were 250 to 500 for each the Eagles and for Bette. Um, and you know what? The, the shows sell, sold okay. They sold all right. Um, they were doing well. But one of the worst things that happened that could happen was Mandalay Bay held a couple thousand of the best seats for each show for their high rollers. So they had a 2,000 for bet, 2,000 for the Eagles at 500 a throw. And three weeks before the show, they started releasing tickets. And I said, what are you guys doing? Release? What, where did these tickets come from? They, when they pulled the tickets back in May, when we went on sale, they were in the sold category on our, on our audits, as opposed to a Y or a comp category indicating these are different tickets. So all along, I thought we had sold 2000 tickets per act more or, you know, and that's $2 million each. Think about it. 500 a ticket times 2000. Oh. So as a, I'm sorry, it's a million dollars each show that suddenly I went backwards on my ticket count sheets and we had to make those up in addition to what we were already selling and it just couldn't be done. It was too late. What did you do with those good prime tickets? Well, we, we moved most of them. We ended up moving a lot of them. But what happened was, was instead of being where we thought we were, we were two grand light on each of the acts. So those tickets I still had left that I was marketing and selling in early December, those became the ones that ended up going to waste because the good seats did end up getting bought, but there was only so many takers and so many buyers under, you know, the duress of the hotel room situation and the threat of all that other stuff. So we weren't getting the response, you know, for people coming to Vegas that we had anticipated due to all those reasons. Plus the ticket prices on top of that. A lot of people just stayed home and had themselves a big old party. Okay. I know a promoter in Vegas, but a show promoter, he brings shows to buildings for extended periods. And he told me in Vegas, the sticker price, the list price is just the beginning. And you can always get the tickets at a discount from the hotel or from a certain part that really the price is variable. Is it the same for the shows that you do? You know, um, in the last year or two, I became aware of these other people. I mean, they're basically seat fillers. Um, and, and a lot of these people, a lot of the marketers at the hotels in Vegas go straight to these people and, and give an allotment of tickets to those people right out of the box, which I think is a horrific mistake. Why not just price your tickets right to begin with if that's what you're going to do or do less shows? But a lot of these shows are there for their sit-down, long, extended type stays. And, and I guess they have to do that. I try never to do that with any of my shows, you know, 
ever. I, I don't like using those discount platforms or or the uh, the ticket. I don't know. They're not necessarily scalpers. They're brokers. Um, I mean, they're good for getting the word out. If you need to have, uh, if you need to have some extra people put into some seats, but as a rule, I don't use them. But I, I'm aware that a lot of people use them up there. Okay. And do you ever paper a show? When I have to, you know, I mean, I'll I'll paper a show when it, usually always when the act is willing to say, I don't want to look like hell, you know, fill in those blanks and we'll we'll work it out and we'll adjust. That does happen. Um, rarely, rarely that happens. But yeah, I'll I'll paper something to make somebody look better as long as they're willing to soften the blow on my end. And did you paper those uh, New Year's Eve shows? No, I didn't. Um, we didn't paper those at all. There was a couple of glaring holes there that the acts didn't like. Um, but I had I had asked them both, should we fill those in? Should we paper? They said, we don't care. We're getting paid the same amount. And I said, but I'm not going to go out and give away $500 free tickets if you're not going to help me out on the other side. And none of them wanted to, so I didn't do it. Okay. So what kind of deal do you get? Now it's well known in the business today that if you own the building, your profit margins go up and not owning a building are difficult, more difficult for you. So if you go to Vegas, what kind of deals do you get with the hall? Explain the numbers. Well, you know, it it depends. Some places will just pay me a commission to buy an act for them. But when I'm at risk when it's my money in somebody else's building. You know, I, I look for whatever breaks that they can give me. For example, um, most hotels are still, uh, casino hotels are generally still very generous with rooms, uh, for the stars that are on the marquee. Um, that's one of the old school perks that I, I still like a lot. Um, that because the groups like that, they like, getting a more of a net income kind of a date where they're not spending thousands of dollars on hotel rooms for the night. So the groups like that, they like coming in for a couple of nights, but as far as the deals I get, you know, it all depends on the hotel. Uh, if they're so hot that they're getting all the big groups, I mean, they charge you up the yin yang and you're paying, you're paying full retail. Uh, you're, you're not getting any breaks. You're not getting free rent. Um, they're, they're charging ticket surcharges on top of their ticket surcharges in some cases. So I'm, I'm a little bit leery, uh, about Vegas, but I did manage to strike some decent deals with Westgate, which used to be the Hilton where Elvis played. And, um, the people at Caesars and I, uh, put a couple shows on sale right before all this happened, uh, at Paris, um, and they're very nice people there. And I'm hoping that we can resume when we pick back up again. But in the meantime, you know, I mean, I started in Vegas before any of the other current concert promoters were there in the early eighties. And now they're all there. Um, you know, it's like any, any other thing. When you get a good idea, you got a good thing going sooner or later. It's just a matter of when people are going to come after you and, and take over or try to take over that business because you've opened the door for it. And in the 80s, you know, nobody was coming to Vegas from from rock and roll. In the early 90s, we we started doing those dead shows at the stadium there 
which really broke open Vegas to to younger people, and uh, which is something we're all very proud of at, at Bill Graham and 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 me and Jam and Evening Star and everybody that was part of those things. They created a, a real legend up there and really broke open that market. But since then, um, you know, a, between AG and Live Nation, they've got most of the good rooms wrapped up big and small. So it it makes it difficult to uh, to survive up there, honestly. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, as an independent promoter, wherever you do a show, whether it be Vegas or Arizona or elsewhere, what are the economics? When they had the roll-up uh, of uh, SFX, ultimately sold to Clear Channel, becomes Live Nation, Michael Rapino tried to reduce guarantees in his amphitheaters. 
what we know with many acts today, forget club shows, but as you move up the ladder, the act essentially gets all of the face value of the tickets and the promoter makes his money on the ticketing fees and other charges. What, what's your situation with Danny Zalisco presents? You know, I, I try to make deals with buildings where we share, uh, in, in the income. If generally speaking, if I buy a show, right, I'm going to make money. If I do 85, 90% business, which is a high threshold to me. Um, most buildings don't want to give up anything, you know, like, like any of their ticket surcharges or food and drink, uh, merchandise, what have you, rebates. Um, you got to get creative with them and figure out how to share whatever it is you're making with them. I mean, at this stage of the game for me, my first, my first inclination is to try to hedge my bet and make sure that if it does go south, I can, I can curtail the losses, uh, by making a deal with the building to say, look, if this doesn't work out as well as I want, uh, perhaps, uh, you can help me out at the, at settlement. You know, if we, and, and that's a great place where I'll pay for something. Um, and again, I haven't had to do that so often. Bottom line is you, you, you want to go into every deal you can trying to get a piece of everything that's available especially if you're taking all the risk. Otherwise, you you find yourself at that juncture where you go, I'm not going to do the show. There's too much risk. And the building wants to keep all the money and not share. So screw it. I won't do it. Okay. Under the best of circumstances, if you go clean, sell out all the tickets in a uh, 4,000-seater with the acts you mentioned, how much can you net? Net to, to Danny Zalisco, irrelevant of paying your people underneath that. You know, it's going to all depend on your ticket prices, what your deal is with the act. But on on a low, on a four thousand seater, you should make at least twenty thousand dollars. And if you cut your deal right, you should make forty. Okay. And if you're in a thousand, if you're in a thousand to fifteen hundred seater, which is where a lot of my shows go, and I'm I'm happy about that because that's where people my age want to see shows. They don't want to go to arenas and stadiums or festivals. And, and if, you know, if I can come out of there with 10 to 15,000, um, and, and a, and a nice night with the Australian Pink Floyd and Mesa Art Center or, or Crosby, Stills and Nash or Jackson Brown or, you know, any of these people, if I can make in that vicinity of money, I'm, I'm a happy guy. And what are the guarantees for acts like that? They're going to go anywhere from 30, 25, 30 grand to a hundred and a quarter. Okay. Now, one thing I've sat with promoters backstage and they have two sets of books and frequently there is, I no have over- no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> they have no, there's no overage. Basically the act gets its guarantee. And unless everything is sold and it's a good night, there's nothing after what's your experience. My experience, Bob is, and, and you're going to laugh. Um, but it's true. I always try to strike as fair of a deal as I possibly can with the agent or the, the artist uh, going in. My goal, if, especially when I get a fair guarantee, what I consider the right guarantee, 
my goal is to write them the biggest possible check at the end of the night that I can, because I want them to come back and visit me. I know that if I do a good job with somebody and, and the date, the, the results of the date get out and around the very small group of people that promote shows in my area, the next time they come around, I'm not going to have an easy time booking them. And somebody's going to say, I want that act, and they're going to offer them more. So the, the, the best way into a band's heart is paying overage checks. And, and, uh, I, I mean, like with, with Frankie Valley and Jackson Parsons, we have shows that, that break even. We have shows where I make a little bit of money and there's shows where I make a good deal of money and they make even more money. Um, and, and the, the issue that we never have that I used to have a lot as a promoter was that whole dual set of books type of a mentality where they just feel like you're out to fuck them, you know, and, and you're going to add on this and add on that and cheat them and so forth. My whole thing has always been to write them as big of a check as possible. And they know it. And needless to say, the business has completely changed. One could say the modern business started with Frank Barcelona and he had his territories. That ended with the roll-up and the consolidation. And what also tended to end was the loyalty. You used to play an act in a club and as they were successful, all the way up to arenas. The question I have for you is, how do you get talent today? Especially with Live Nation or AEG, with a lot of these acts willing to make national or international deals. How do you get dates? They're, they're kind of, um, they're, they're these in-betweeners, you know, um, it, it, it seems to me that a lot of the, a lot of the acts I do people from the buying standpoint have either forgot about them or in many cases, they're not even aware of who they are because the buyers today around the country. I mean, there's definitely a lot of independent buyers out there, but most of the independent buyers and, and, and the buyers that work for the AGs and the live nations are younger and they're filling up their nightclubs, which I don't do. Um, there's PAC groups, a lot of which I work with, but I, I'm kind of like floating in between a lot of these different uh, client lists that these agencies have where I'm going for people that I've worked with for many years. Um, to me, they're still great. They're exciting. They're fun. People still love to see them in the right halls. They're willing to pay a little bit more money. And, and fortunately for me, a lot of, a lot of other promoters don't care about these groups. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I used to do, I did more John Prime shows as an independent promoter prior to selling to SFX than any other show that I ever did. And it was because nobody cared. Nobody got it. Nobody understood. They weren't willing to do the work it took to promote him and do the grassroots marketing that it takes to make these people grow. And it took years for John to grow. And, and, and oh, sadly, he was taken from us this year. But this guy, he, I mean, he, was, he turned into a six-figure act. I used to pay him five grand a night. And, and it's, he grew up with his audience and he got bigger as he grew up. And, uh, I mean, good for me that I'm hip to these guys, bad for them that they're not, but they got all the Taylor Swifts and Ariana Grandes and Billie Eilish's and all these hot groups, which 
I must admit, I'm a little envious that I don't get to work with like I would if it was 20 or 30 years ago, but I'm happy with what I got. You know, I, I, I can't cry about what other people are doing that I'm not. That ain't right. How many shows you do a year now? About 125. And how far do you go outside of Arizona and Vegas? I did, um, uh, farthest I went in the last year was I, I had Gordon Lightfoot and Alan Parsons both at, uh, town hall in New York city. I started doing shows in Chicago with Scotty Gelman, who I met when he was with jam. And we've been doing shows in a place called the Copernicus center, as well as the Rosemont theater, which is a beautiful place. Um, we went to Green Bay with Frankie Valley. We're going back there with Frankie Valley. We're also going there with Bachman Cummings and Dave Mason, which is a show that I put together. Um, Dave Mason lives over here in, in Hawaii. I'm going to see him this weekend. Uh, I went to Atlanta and Houston with uh, Alan Parsons. Um, you know, I, I'll go as far as because because I know these groups and I know how to promote them and I know how to work with them. I can do them in different places, even with a smaller office like I have. And and to me, that's like the most fun I've ever had is flying around with these guys, staying in the hotels, having our dinners, having our shows, having our after shows. It, it's really special. You know, it's a lot of fun. How many dates will you do with one act? What's the most you've done with one act in the last couple of years? Frankie, uh, Frankie and I do a lot of shows, but it, it, in the last year or two, it just, it just keeps getting a little bit more and more. Same with Parsons, same with Gordon. It's like, they'll call me up and say, where do you want to go? And I'll say to them, you got the books on them. Where do you need to go? Where haven't you been? I never want to try to poach an act from somebody in a market where they already have history with them. I still pay attention to that, although most people don't anymore. I think that kind of stuff's important. You don't need things like that biting you in the butt and chasing you around. But there's a lot of bands out there that don't have regular promoters in a lot of good markets. Um, not just the ones I'm talking about. There's plenty of others. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, with, with these bands that I'm talking about, it takes enthusiasm on my end and the hall's end and the local media end to make that important to the audience that's there who doesn't know or care whether or not this act comes until you bring it to them and make it important for them to go. And that's why people go to shows. How, how do you market a show? What is your special sauce? And there's both behind the curtain and in front of the curtain. What about the experience do you give the audience that is special that will help you build the band? So A, how do you get the people in the building? B, what do you do special when they're inside the building? <clears throat> you know. Um, I'll, I'll, I don't know if I'm whatever order I'll, I'll answer that in, but how I get them in the building is uh, I find that the, the e-blasts, uh, emails, um, to a, a database from a radio station or the hall, uh, generally is a really great way to get the word out because they already have tech, semi tech savvy people. Uh, who, who are signed up and, and like getting notices about shows. Social media has been a great help to getting the word out. Um, doing the pre-sales is a, is a good thing. And, and 
making sure good seats are available on both the pre-sale and the first day of sale is is very important. Um, you know, I mean, on the on the first day, going into my first day of on sales with these shows that hold a thousand, two thousand tickets, I like going in with three or five hundred tickets sold under the radar without spending a dime before I've even started my my uh, spending money on on media. Um, I I still like print in some markets as archaic as it sounds, and it is in many cases. Um, I've been doing less and less of that, but I was one of the last guys to give up on print. I love billboards for on sales and the week of shows. Um, getting in, involved with free radio stations, just your regular FM stations, if they're into it and they're willing to promote it for you uh, for a few days just to get the word out. You know, with my with my acts, the acts that I I promote, most of them are pretty well known. And when you hear their names, you know it immediately or you don't. There's not a whole lot of education involved as opposed to, you know, what you got to jump through hoops and educating people about bands. I like going to the, I like going to the halls that my audience likes to go to. I like to make sure they get their tickets without any hassle. Um, I'm always around at the shows and I make myself known presently. So if they got a problem, they can ask me about it or say something to me. Um, to me, uh, putting on the show on time when, when you say you're going to put the show on, uh, without a whole bunch of drama, it is the best time that I think I can provide for somebody. When somebody buys a ticket to a show, I don't want them to worry about that there's seats there or that it's clean or that there's a good parking space or a bathroom or drinks to buy at the bar. All that kind of stuff, like you're throwing a party, has got to be in order so that you can be a good host for people. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot of bells and whistles and fireworks beyond that, that, that I provide rather, uh, I do try to provide a congenial atmosphere. Um, I go out in front of every show and welcome the audience and kind of make them feel like they're part of it. Uh, that was something that I used to see Bill Graham do all the time and he was the greatest at it. And I've always done that the whole time. It's like one of the fun times of the night where I get to say hello to our customers and, and they, they seem to really appreciate that. And I loved, I love doing it. Yeah. Now, speaking of Bill Graham, uh, let's go back to the beginning. Cause that's when you met Bill Graham. How did you meet Bill and what was your relationship with him as time went on and his pluses and minuses? Um, I learned about him growing up in Chicago in the late sixties, early seventies, Back at that time, you didn't have the internet, but we, we had, you know, Rolling Stone and you, you, every now and then something would be on TV or be in Circus Magazine or, or Teen Beat. Uh, not that much with Bill Graham and Teen Beat. So, um, but, uh, you know, I learned about him and, and then there was all the hubbub about the Fillmore's opening and closing. And, and right about the time that he closed them is when I got out of high school. And I went to San Francisco with a couple of friends and, and I, I was trying to move there. I, I brought my records and my stereo with me and everything. And there was a lot of them. Um, so, uh, I, I went to a show, uh, and, and I jumped onto an equipment truck 
and started unloading some gear. And when I came down the ramp, it was Yes's equipment truck. I had an English accent when I talked to the San Francisco guys. And when I went back up the ramp, I talked like a San Francisco guy to the English guys. So they all thought I was working for the other the whole day until Bill walked into catering and picked me up by the collar and said, who's this kid? You know, and uh, it went on from there. Uh, that was in 72. Uh, by 19, in 74, he asked me to move to Denver because he had a partner in Denver that he was having a problem with. Um, a longtime promoter up there had some, had something going on. I don't know what I didn't ask, but, uh, he offered me $400 a month. And I said, I'm not going to starve even for you, Bill. Um, so I passed and I started doing shows in Phoenix. And one thing led to another. A couple of years later, he's calling me up for helping him out on the Stars Born concert that he did for Barbara Streisand and John Peters. Uh, he did the concert that brought the people into the stadium to do the background shots for Chris and Barbara uh, in the in the movie. And we had a great time there. I, I drove him around for a couple of weeks, uh, met Christopherson, became great friends with him. He lives down the street from where I'm sitting right now. Um, and uh, I didn't I didn't actually get to do a show with Bill until 1987. I talked him into doing the Grateful Dead at Compton Terrace in Phoenix, uh, which was owned by uh, the Knicks family, Jess and his wife and brother and, and Stevie. And um, we sold 17,000 tickets there, and Bill just loved that. And uh, it was way bigger than he thought it would ever be. And we became very close, and I thought would be for a very long time. We would be very close. Um, I went and visited with him and stayed with him at Masada up in San Francisco. And, and I maintained my relationship with Bob Barsotti, who was the guy that kind of brought me in um, back in that high school show with Yes. And um, we we ended up starting together those Grateful Dead shows in 1991. And, and unfortunately, that was a few months later, Bill was dead. But we had, we had a fantastic time. We were two peas in a pod. Okay. What makes you successful, Danny Zalisco? Tenacity. You know, I, I, I like to think I stay after it, uh, Bob. It's, um, you know, at this stage, you know, like it's the same as it was, was, was when, I, when I was a little kid. It, it's one step after the other. If, if you find something good with one step, there must be another one and another one and another one. Saying no to yourself is probably the biggest hangup. I think that the deterrent to get gets in people's ways when they when they're trying to do anything, much less in the music business. It's a very difficult business to break into. If I had to do it over again, I would give it myself a second thought about it. It, it was very rough. Uh, it, it, it's been difficult at some times, but overall, on a score of one to a hundred, I would give it ninety nine. Is a great career. Uh, that I've been fortunate enough to have. Um, my success comes from not taking no for an answer when I know it should be yes. Um, and, and doing it in such a way where you're not a pain in the ass to people where they really don't want to be around you, but rather, you know, figuring out a way to point out why it's a good thing to do business with me. And, and after all, fortunately, after all these years, 40 something years of doing all these shows, 
somehow the good stuff stuck uh, as far as being a fan, loving the music, trying to be fair, be a good guy. Uh, I, you know, I'm not no boy scout by any means, but, but when it comes to this business, there's a lot of guys who are anything but boy scouts and, and the, the average lifespan of a promoter isn't really that long the last time I checked. So to be in it after all this time, you know, it's, it's a great feeling, believe me. Now, if you read your book and I recommend it, certainly a tale from a different viewpoint, it's very personal. What astounded me was you grew up in Chicago and it's a little bit of an overstatement to say you knew every famous athlete in Chicago, but almost. <laughs> so, you know, how did this happen and who did you meet? Well, in in the early 60s, Chicago was full of these great sports stars. Ernie Banks, one of the greatest first black player for the Cubs. Um one of the nicest people I've ever known. Uh, there was guys on the White Sox like Minnie Minoso, Joe Cunningham, Stretch Cunningham, the first baseman who would do the splits when he, when he reached out for a ball at first base. There was the hockey players, Bob, uh, Bobby Hull and Stan Mikita. Um, and the Bears won that championship in 1963. And that was right when I was becoming aware of my surroundings and all these different people who were really unattainable to me. I, I couldn't ever dream of meeting these people, much less anything else. And I had an older brother named Jimmy, and he was uh, three years older than me, and he started going down to the ballpark. So this was in 63, 64, 65. He taught my parents and let me go along with them, and we'd gather our baseball cards to get signed or our football cards. And one by one by one, we had access to these players because they parked in parking lots like normal people across from the entrance to get in so we could have access to them. And um, after a while, they get to recognize us. They'd walk us into the ball games. We never paid to get into a game. They walked us in. We had everything with these guys. And and we learned the mannerisms and the nature and, and the ability to get along with not only older people, but famous people. And, 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 and to realize when, when you're not being a groupie type, you're being more like a friend. And there were so many great athletes in Chicago. And the fact that we got to be around them, and I, and I would see other people who would screw up and be stupid around them. And you'd, you'd learn for yourself. You make yourself a little note to, your, to yourself and you go, don't be an idiot. Don't do that. And, and, and you learn that, that speak, celebrity speak. And, and it segued into music in the late, you know, in the late sixties. Um, and, and it was, I found it was the same thing with them. People who have special abilities, whether it's hitting a baseball or playing a guitar in, in many cases, because they're so special at one thing, they don't pay attention to normal things. And that's kind of like where I figured I could fit in. Um, I heard, you know, like when Marilyn Monroe got killed or, or, or somebody killed themselves in Hollywood, I thought to myself, they didn't have anybody good to talk to. They needed a good friend right then. I didn't know about managers and agents and personal assistants and all that stuff, but it occurred to me that maybe that would have helped back then. And, um, the whole, the whole study 
uh, of the of the personalities for me, and I didn't know it at the time. I mean, I'm not no shrink. It, it was so fascinating to me getting into these people's heads and and them and realizing they actually would like me, and we would become friends. And you know, Brian Piccolo's calling me up at at home at dinner time about something, and my dad answered the phone. Hey, who is this? Brian Piccolo. Yeah, sure it is. Hold on, wise guy. And he had me the phone. I go, Dad, that was really Brian. You should be nicer to him next time. Um, it, it, it was, you know, for a, for a middle-class kid, that, that whole thing was, when I think back on it, was, was astounding. But there was a reason for it. I just didn't know what it was at the time. Okay, let's go a little, <laughs> little bit deeper. You know, most people don't have the privilege to be able to meet famous people. And as you say, they tend to be groupies, but they also tend to pinch themselves. We've all had that experience. Go, I'm sitting here talking to this world famous person. How did you check yourself such that you could continue to be a friend? How did you get yourself in that headspace? You know, it's like you, you don't just learn out of books. You, you learn from experience. You learn by paying attention to what's happening right in front of you. And, and you can tell, you can vibe people out. And it was before I knew what vibing people out meant. But as a little kid, um, discovering things and being able to share them with people. For instance, you know, like I wrote about in, in the book about discovering the Beatles. Uh, not discovering, discovering, but discovering their record before anybody else did in, in Chicago. Uh, friends of mine, that is. And, and I remember how hard it was to turn people on to the Beatles until the Ed Sullivan show happened. And then of course they forgot that I had please, please me for a year before that. But I was very proud to myself about that. And it's, I didn't want to go nah, 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 you know, to everybody else. See, I told you. So it was more like, I realized that I was onto something and I maintained that kind of presence with when talking to or being around these people like you belong, you fit in as you belong. You're not there to be window dressing or to be a hanger on, you know, or some sort of a star fucker or something like that. You're, you're, you're there because you like them and you're drawn to them and you figure out a way to be invited back. And, and doing that is by being subtle and not obnoxious. Okay. You know, tell, you know, you define you go on, you have a special relationship with Ernie Banks. Can you tell a little, us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, Ernie, uh, Ernie was always kind to uh, the kids. It, my brother and I became friendly with him um, and, and special friends to him, I felt. Uh, he would call in on us. He would call us at home and check on us, make sure every now and then, not all the time, but once every few months, you guys doing your homework. Are you practicing your baseball? When are you coming to the park? Do you need some tickets? I mean, this is 1964, five, six, seven. And after he left baseball in the early 70s, my brother was uh, a publicist, a PR guy. Uh, he was working for the uh, Illinois Entertainer at the time um, and some other, and he did some stuff for Scarlett Rivera. Uh, you know her. Um, and, and he got around doing that, but unfortunately he had a, a heart disease, which killed him in 1981. We thought 
he was going to live till he was five or six and he lived till he was 30. So he had a great life and, and that was fantastic. But you're talking was, about your brother the, here, not Ernie Banks. I'm talking about my brother, Jimmy. Yeah. So he started doing PR for Ernie after Ernie got out of baseball and, and they would get together and they would try to drum up some business. This was before, you know, the classic ball players were able to make a great living signing autographs. Ernie made so much more money signing autographs than he ever did as a player, but being a player enabled him to be that guy that could make thousands for signing his name. And Jimmy would help him with that. And, uh, and we always stayed in touch. Uh, when he came to Arizona every year for, uh, for spring training, we would have a golf game or some drinks. And, um, in fact, one, uh, one time, he was uh, going to do one of those, a brand new camp for old people. And he decided he didn't want to do it once he got to Phoenix. So he gave me his uniform. And he says, go be Ernie Banks for me. I'll be back at the end of the week. And, and uh, that was fun. Uh, <laughs> me showing up with Ernie Banks' uniform drooping on me <laughs> was, was quite a picture, but it worked. Um, one of the last things that, that ever happened with Ernie with me Ernie asked me if I could get Lady Gaga to play at Wrigley Field. And I called Jerry Barrett and, and asked him about that. But he said there was no, no availability, sadly. And uh, we never got to do that show. But uh, he, he was just one of those. He became family. Uh, when my brother died, he came to the wake and he ended up signing holy cards in front of his casket for an hour. It was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen, but it was beautiful. He, he was so weirded out about it. I said, Ernie, think about it. How many times did he stand next to you while you signed and waited for you so that you could go do your business? He goes all the time. I said, don't worry about it. He'll be happy. So it, it, it was an eerie scene, but it made sense. Okay. So what musicians are you fans of and what musicians are you not fans of personally? Um, I'm a, I'm a very big Pink Floyd fan. Um, I liked all the versions, but especially, of course, the the Dark Side and the uh, the Wall and 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 Animals were three of my favorites. But Uma Guma was my record. Big King Crimson fan. Um, some prog rock, not a lot, but Gentle Giant, yes, Caravan, Family. I love British bands. Uh, in America, I love Frank Zappa and I love John Prine and I love Joni Mitchell. I love Laura Nero. I love all of the, the great, great musicians that, uh, not, not even just ones that I've worked with. I've worked with most of them, but, um, you know, I, when, when I first got to do Roxy music, you know, I love Brian Ferry, one of my absolute favorites doing that, that, that David Byrne show. That, uh, that Ben Schiffer and Mark Geiger sold me in Vegas and in Phoenix. Uh, that, the one that's on TV right now that you didn't like. I love that show on stage. I haven't seen the TV show. Um, but also I want you to know not about the acts, but the actual people. Cause as a promoter, it's kind of like hanging with Ernie Banks. Who do you have a special relationship with? Well, uh, Roger Waters and I are especially close. We have, uh, we have phone, uh, video calls all the time. 
we'll we'll have a happy hour together once in a while. But he hasn't been drinking, so we haven't been having happy hours lately. But uh, I love Roger. Um, he was uh, I was one of the first promoters to buy a show with him after he left Floyd. And his first people forget his first go around, he didn't do all that great. Uh, it was it was tough selling tickets back in the eighties for a guy who left the band that big and was also blamed for breaking it up. So um, I love him. And, and I mentioned John Prine is uh, definitely, you know, one of my very, very best friends. Al Demiola and I are, are very close. Um, Sean Phillips, Ian McDonald, all these other guys that I, that I, that I've been talking about, Frankie Valley and, Alan Parsons and his family. Uh, Dave Mason lives over here. We're we're getting together tomorrow. He's fantastic. Um, it, it, it's an amazing group of people that we grew up with, Bob. You know, in the '60s, in the '70s. I mean, they, there'll never be another time period like that, as far as I can tell you. Okay, so you ultimately sold your initial company, Evening Evening Star Productions, to SFX Clear Channel, but you were not one of the early sellers. Certainly the early sellers got a big buck. Uh, how did you do when you finally sold? Well, I was different than, than say BGP or Pace. Um, I didn't own any real estate. So like Irv Zuckerman, he had the amphitheater. Um, you know, most of the big guys that, that sold their companies in the late 90s in the early 2000s, like I did, most of them were real estate owners. So I think based on on what I was doing, I felt like it it was a fair price. Truth be told, I was going to do it originally with Jay Marciano, uh, who was at House of Blues at the time. And then they had that big crash there in 2000. And, and they, they decided they were going to go up against SFX and become, you know, the yin to the yang. And uh, they closed down that idea. And, and that's when I made the deal with, it originally started with Louis Messina at Pace. And then it ended up with Rodney Eckerman and, and, and all them. Um, I didn't want to do it, but you know, I, I started seeing all my favorite best acts like Tina Turner and even Well, Roger Waters never had me cut out, but Santana, and a, and a number of bands that I built myself up to doing three, four, five cities with on each tour. Suddenly now I'm getting a third or a half of a show in Phoenix only after I've gone through several tours, building those markets up for those bands. Now suddenly there's one promoter and, and I don't get a piece of those shows anymore. Um, that's when the writing was on the wall. And then that, you know, at the end of 99, that Eagles and Bette Midler thing uh, happened as well. So 2000 was a year for me. It took me all year long to raise the money to pay back uh, Mandalay Bay for those shows. Um, it ended up becoming a much more reasonable number when it was all said and done. But it was still in excess of a half a million bucks, uh, which was a lot of money for, for people like us to lose. Um, all those things combined made it necessary. I wasn't going out of business. I wasn't out of money, but mentally for me, I, I just, I didn't feel like I was going to be able to withstand even more pressure 
from consolidated buying. You know, I, I, I just thought I would, I would get wiped out. I was already seeing that writing on the walls when I'm getting a half of a Santana show. And, and I had been, other than the Bill Graham people, I was his most regular loyal promoter in, in my part of the country. That's just an example. I'm not picking on them. But, you know, when, when you're getting it, like I said earlier, when you get a, a check for an entire tour up front, the person giving that checkout isn't really happy to have baggage like me along for the ride. And uh, that's what happened. So how did you do financially? I did great. Enough, I did to, great. enough to not work again if you'd chosen to? Yeah, you know, that's what I thought was going to happen. And uh, Rodney said to me, hey, we're not buying you to retire you. We're buying you to make money for us. So part of the deal had some money in it that if I quit, uh, earlier, I wouldn't get all of it, but that never happened, of course. Um, you know, I, I did well with it. I, I saved a good deal of it. I didn't go out and go crazy. Uh, I had already bought the house that I still live in, uh, with my own money and my own earnings prior to selling. Uh, I was, I was set prior to selling the company. It seemed like a really good time to, to take some cash off the table and, and see what happened, because even though I didn't know what was going to happen the way that it did happen, you know, it was clear that something completely different was going on than the Frank Barcelona days or, or doing shows wherever you want to do if nobody else is doing them in that market. Uh, it, it, it changed dramatically. And, and looking back, I, I'll never know if it was a good idea or a great idea or not, but uh, I like to think I made, I made the right uh, decision doing that. And then, um, uh, you know, getting the opportunity in 2011 to go back out and do it again, starting from scratch, uh, was very difficult, not impossible, obviously. And I've had, I've made more money each year since I started over again than I was making on salary from Live Nation. And so why did it really, why did it really not work out for you in Live Nation? Well, uh, a, a number of reasons. I, I absolutely loved uh, when Michael Rapino took over the, what was the name of the company before they came up with Live Nation? It was Clear Channel, right? Well, there was a name they were calling it for, like Soundco or Showco. Or oh, yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. But that was just a temporary name, right? Okay. Right. Until they had a name. But I, I love the, the excitement of when he took over. Um you know, but it, it just turned into a completely different animal. He did great. I mean, he, he's done greater than anybody I've ever known in the business. I mean, he went, he went from being a somebody in Canada to, to being, a, you know, and, and not even a big somebody like Michael Cole, who he worked for, but he turned into the biggest somebody in the music business, live music business. I, I mean, I'm, I I can't say enough about how great it is that he was that successful. He did great for him, but in in our in our uh, in our world in Phoenix, they uh, they made a deal uh, to take over the uh, Dodge Theater, um, and we had already we already had a great deal with the Dodge Theater in place, um, and unfortunately, when they took it over. With the deal they made, it cost uh, everybody a lot of money. 
Um, and there was, there was definitely some, some weird feelings about that because, you know, over in LA, they thought that we should be able to overcome the fact that they made one of the dumbest deals in the history of life when they signed on for that building for 10 years. Um, my company, Evening Star, which is what they were calling, you know, our little unit for Vegas, Albuquerque and Phoenix was making millions of dollars each year. Um, and then when they, when they made the Dodge theater deal, it turned us into a loser. And, uh, there were times where they would call us out for being losers. Although we weren't the ones that made the deal for this building, the deal we had in place prior to that, we were making a couple million dollars a year from just from that deal. So bottom line, um, they didn't think much of Phoenix. Uh, some of the people at Live Nation, uh, they thought it was a losing market without paying attention to the fact that they just made one terrible deal that screwed that market up. So what was happening was they decided as a rule that we couldn't book concerts outside of the Dodge Theater or the Amphitheater, which is 20,000 seats and the Dodge was 5,000. But there's all of the, these clubs and the bands that would play the 1,000, 2,000 seaters, I wasn't allowed to book any of those groups. All I could book at, at Live Nation was groups that could go into the Dodge Theater. So I'm finding myself doing Ray Davies in 5,000 seats when he's going to draw 700 people. Um, that was aggravating. And, and passing on shows and watching other promoters even though I wouldn't make any more or less money because I was on salary, right? Uh, and there's no bonuses or anything like that. So when I would see these shows that I would want to do, my friends or people that I'm used to working with that make money, and then I'd have to pass on them because they wouldn't let me do shows outside of those theaters, you know, uh, it made me nasty and, and it was depressing. And, and I just didn't feel like I was, I was doing anything of worth to these people every year, more and more, the deals came out of LA. They bought tours. They went to the amphitheaters. They went to the arenas and we would end up going to our shows. And I would feel like a second class citizen. Um, you know, it, it's not my show anymore, even though it's a company that I work for, it, it wasn't the same, you know? And anyway, uh, Towards the, towards the end of that, um, uh, I was talking with Bob Rue about making a new deal where I could go back and start booking some of those type of groups and, and maybe have like a, a more of a partnership deal with them than being an employee and do what they needed done and then do my own thing. And, and then at, at one point it just broke down and we both just said, fuck it. And, um, uh, I was left to my own devices. Yeah, and 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 it worked. It worked out okay. I you know I really didn't know if I was going to continue, but right when that happened, if you recall, it's almost ten years ago. There was that terrible shooting in Tucson where Gabby Giffords got shot in the face, and and Ron Barber, and and there was that that terrible you know thing that happened down there. Uh, Shop and Alice and Cree Miller and Jackson and Buddha. Uh, we decided at the same time they wanted to do something in Tucson 
about this. And, and we ended up putting together a show and, and it was really Cree running the show. And, uh, she goes, so what, what name should we put on the poster? And I, and I said, I don't know. And she goes, well, you got to come up with a company name like Evening Star. Why don't you use Evening Star? I said, well, Live Nation owns it and they won't give it back. So she goes, all right, we'll put Danny Zalesko presents on the poster. So that's how Danny Zalesko presents was started and named. Um, I went out and registered it and got the website and did all the stuff. He turned on telephones, opened new bank accounts, which is about the biggest pain in the ass stuff to do. Uh, cause I hadn't had to do that like in 40 years. Everything just kind of kept on moving forward with time, you know, getting more modern. And I got a fax machine. I got a cell phone, you know, I didn't have to have a Watts line anymore. Remember Watts line? Oh, yeah. You know, all that stuff is, is a thing of the past. And now they don't even have CDs anymore, hardly. Vinyl. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so a couple of your favorite shows that you promoted. In no particular order, uh, Roger Waters' shows for me were always brilliant. Doing the John Prine shows. John Prine with Bonnie Raitt, one of the best shows I did. We used to we used to tour around the Midwest together. Um, I love that. I told that David Byrne show was one of the best live events I've seen in recent years. Um, you know, I, the groups I was talking about before basically are, are probably that show we did the Jackson and, and Alice Cooper show. That benefit was fantastic. Um, it, it had uh, David Crosby and, Nils Lofgren and Graham Nash and Sam Moore and Keb Moe, just a fantastic lineup. Um, I had a guy in Phoenix called Jerry Riappel, who's uh, like Elvis Presley in Phoenix. He died a couple of years ago. Unfortunately, he never got as big as he should have gotten. Um, but I, I'm, I'm pretty much generally very um, loyal to those names when I, when anybody asked me that. Okay. So why write a book? You know, like you were talking before about maybe pinch yourself. I pinch myself. I realized some years ago, I mean, I I've known forever. I mean, it, it, I didn't just wake up one day and say, wow, wow, this is great. I mean, when Jerry Garcia comes up to you and thanks you for getting him into Siegfried and Roy. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Um, you know, when, when Kirk Gibson and Bob Melvin from the Dimebacks come to a, uh, a who show and, and come backstage and they're sitting around drinking with you. That's, that's a, a great deal. When Gail Sayers chases me down in Vegas and t- tells me I have to meet Bob Seeger after the show and I bring Bob Seeger a meet and greet. <laughs> I got Bob, I got a meet and greet for you. Oh yeah. You know, not easily impressed. And and he was they were all blown away. The whole band surrounded Gail Sears. Those, those moments are, you know, uh, they're genius. Seeger, uh one of my one of my favorite guys ever, um, of all time. And and the shows that we did were just magic. Just magic what he did. So, but why why write the book and why write now? You said, is it sort of an advertisement? You were talking about pitching yourself. You know, it, 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 I, I pinch myself when I think about all the various things that have happened. I've, and I'm a collector, you know, I, I, not a hoarder, but kind of a hoarder, but a collector. I love all these years I've been getting people to sign things and posters and set lists and guitars and, and, and all these things that I have around me. It's turned into tens of thousands of items over 40 years and over 10,000 shows. So I've got all this stuff and go, what am I going to do with this? So, you know, I've thought about, I'd love to have a museum. I'd love to have people be able to walk through and see all this stuff and enjoy it. And, and that's a very expensive, difficult proposition. Um, so one night in 2016, uh, I'm watching Shark Tank, 
which is a show that I like. And this guy comes on. It was the Bill Walton episode. Bill Walton was helping a friend of his pitch something. And the guy that came on after him was a guy who called himself a ghostwriter. And he said he could help you write a book. And I needed some direction. Um, you know, I, I, we've had a, we've had a couple of exchanges about that. And, and the hardest thing for me to get going with was just putting down a story or two and seeing what it read like and seeing what it looked like without thinking about what order it had to go in. But you just, you had to come up with your own thoughts, uh, comprising of history and whatever you can summon up to feel how you felt at that time and try to recall that. I wish I had kept a journal all these years because it would really, really be great. Um, but I, fortunately, I have enough pictures and enough memorabilia and enough history around me where I can just look at a picture or a, or a, or a piece of something and it can summon up a story for me. So this guy got me reciting, uh, recording uh, stories. He would ask me, interview me, much the same way that you're doing. And, but we'd talk about just one topic for an hour and we'd hang up and he'd get it transcribed, send it to me and we edit it back and forth. And that's, that's how I got started with it. I wish I had known to do that years before because so many, so many great stories have gone by me that, you know, I mean, I, I have to be triggered to be reminded of that. So, I had a much bigger book than what you have right now because I took out a bunch of stories thinking they weren't good enough or I, I'd save it for another time. I, as it is, it's a very long book at 350 pages. And, and then I had all these pictures and I wanted to figure out what to do with the pictures. So what I hated doing when I read a book is I don't like to see 50 pages of, of words and then six pages of photographs. And then another 50 pages of words and another photo section. I wanted to make this book so that you didn't have to remember anything or go back to reference it while you're reading it with those other types of books, which are pretty much standard. And I wanted my, my story to be told with the pictures as part of the words to enhance the story. And I hope I was successful at that. I feel like I was. And then. Then there were so many other people I wanted to write about, but you can't write a story about everybody. So I was able to put some photo sections in there. And, and I took a lot of time on the captions. I tried to make them funny or topical or informative or humorous or all of the above. Um, so I ended up with 700 pictures in there and, and, and I've still got 700 more I'd like to share. So that's, that's what made me do it. It's just having all the stories and, and all this stuff around. It's like, I know that people love this stuff. Music freaks, rock and rollers, the, the people that buy the T-shirts at the shows, the people that buy the tickets when they first go on sale, the people who buy the tickets at the door the night of the show. They're, they're all different types of people, but we've all got one thing in common. We love music and we love the people who make them and, and the music. And, and there's nothing like seeing them live. And fortunately for me, the, the facilities that I use are generally the ones that people like to go to the most for that type of group. And hopefully when, you know, that moment when you're about to hear an announcement, you know, uh, Alan Parsons is coming to town. You're going, if you're an Alan Parsons fan, I hope it's going to be at this one place, whatever you like. And, and I, I strive to make the right place click 
so that when people hear it, they go, that's where I would do the show if I was putting it on. For those who haven't seen the book yet, it's really kind of unique because there are a lot of people who write books that get caught up in detail. And as Danny says, ultimately the pictures are in the back or in the middle. This is like kind of a cross between a conventional book and a coffee book, a coffee table book. And that the pictures are there and you read, you know, other than Bill Wyman, who's a legendary collector and just sold some of his stuff, you are looking at the book and go, how does he have this? Where does he get it from? And it really is the scrapbook of our lives. It's not only Danny. You remember those eras as you uh, got older and went to see those bands. In any event, Danny, thanks so much for doing this. Hopefully, we'll all be going to shows soon. No kidding, man. I won't be soon enough. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sense. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.